Welcome to a brand new episode of The Blackout, as always, brought to you by Super Team Media. I am your host, Thomas Black. And on this week six episode of the podcast, I'll be bringing you the best and worst of week five in college football. Additionally, in the next segment, I'll have an interview with Tyler Palmatier, the sports editor and the beat reporter for the Oklahoma Sooners for the Norman Transcript, as he'll be previewing number 19 Texas versus number seven Oklahoma this weekend at noon Eastern time on Fox. And as I do each and every week, I'll have my picks against the spread And oh my goodness, when I review the ones from week five, you'll understand just how bad I got hammered last week. But I'll try to correct those wrongs as we head into some exciting games here in week six. Now, as I promised you just a moment ago, let's get to the very best of week five of the college football season as we work our way to the college football playoff. And for the best of this past week, I'm going with the Clemson Tigers for their comeback win against the Syracuse Orange 27-23 amid some very difficult circumstances. Clemson had its star true freshman quarterback Trevor Lawrence go down in the second quarter with an injury already trailing Syracuse. And going into the half, the Orange took a commanding 16-7 lead off of some difficulties from Clemson handling the ball early in the game. And what felt like Clemson was already in trouble of possibly losing a second straight game to the Syracuse Orange. Of course, Clemson was also dealing with the transfer of Kelly Bryant, who was the starting quarterback for the Tigers to open the season. Of course, it is concerning watching Clemson struggle with Syracuse in back-to-back seasons, but I give Clemson the best of this past weekend because of the grit and resolve this team showed in coming back from a couple of double-digit deficits against Syracuse without its starting quarterback, without the quarterback who started the season, and going to a guy who had only thrown a handful of passes in his career and Chase Bryce. Once the Clemson coaching staff had to make the switch to Chase Bryce, it was up to the defense to hold the Syracuse offense at bay, and it was up to the running game for Clemson to get things going and establish an offensive attack that could slowly build their way back into the game. I'm not going to be so quick in jumping all over Clemson for being in a close game with Syracuse, although that was concerning. You just have to look at what Clemson did to allow Syracuse to be in the position they were. It was Trevor Lawrence's fumble in the first quarter, while the Tigers were already down 3-0, which allowed Syracuse to kick another field goal. It was Amari Rodgers who muffed the punt late in the game that allowed Syracuse to score from just 10 yards out to put the lead back at 10 points. Despite all of this, Clemson relied on Travis Etienne and his career-high 203-yard rushing performance and three touchdowns to be able to work their way back into the game. Here's the second of Etienne's three scores as his run into the end zone put Clemson in a position to be able to win the game on their final drive. Etienne the running back, and he takes it through the middle, breaks a couple of times. That was Sean McDonough on the call for ESPN on ABC as Clemson got a score they desperately needed to be able to find a way to stave off another upset from the Syracuse Orange. But ultimately, it was a total team effort that got Clemson through for the win. Travis Etienne's performance was massive, but you can't do enough to highlight the biggest individual play of the game when Chase Bryce threw the 20-yard completion to T. Higgins on 4th and 6 to keep Clemson's final drive alive to win the game. On top of that, I have to highlight as well the play of Xavier Thomas. The true freshman defensive end is just phenomenal. The speed, strength, and power that he displays 
is remarkable for a true freshman. He sacked Eric Dungy twice with less than a minute to go, and his impact on that game has already been noted by head coach Dabo Sweeney as he has said there's simply no way that they can look at a guy like Xavier Thomas and not play him more as the season goes on. All in all, whatever part of the game you would like to highlight, this was a team effort getting Clemson over the top and getting this win 27-23 over Syracuse. And with that, it's time to move on to the very worst of week five of the college football season. And there's no way around this one. You just have to give it to Penn State for their play call on fourth and five inside Ohio State territory as they were trailing the Buckeyes by one point on their home field. Ball game right here. Just get it off. Sanders, smother, Chase Young. Another big play. Ohio State makes a stop and takes over. And they're going to come to the whiteout and conquer the Nittany Lions. That is Chris Fowler on the call for ESPN on ABC as Ohio State traveled to Penn State and somehow found a way to sneak away with a win after trailing by double digits with only eight minutes left in the game. Sure, some credit has to go to the Buckeyes for making the comeback, but Penn State was in control of this entire game, mostly at the hands of their quarterback, Trace McSorley. But no matter how much Trace McSorley controlled the first three quarters of this game, the ball was taken out of his hands and given to Miles Sanders for a running play instead of keeping it in McSorley's hands and giving him a chance to either pass or run for the first down. This was just a complete debacle as McSorley had already run for 175 yards and thrown for 286 yards in the game. Penn State ranked ninth in the country on their home field against the fourth-ranked Buckeyes. Had they come away with this win, they would have vaulted into the top five and been squarely in a position to easily make a run at the college football playoff. But now they've got a huge hurdle in their way as Ohio State holds the tiebreaker inside the Big Ten East. I just don't know how you can look at this situation, fourth and five, and the magnitude that it carries, and not leave the ball in the hands of Trace McSorley. That's why I pegged this play as the worst of college football's week five. Now it's time to go to a question from one of the listeners to the blackout. Hey, Thomas, this is Chris Randazzo from Atlanta, Georgia. I had a question for you. What are UCF's chances on making the college football playoff? Love to hear your take on that. Thanks so much. Love the show. And thank you, Chris, for getting your question into the blackout. But I'm sorry to say, when it comes to UCF, there is absolutely no chance this team makes the college football playoff. Now, that's kind of sad to say when you're talking about the defending national champions, as the Knights call themselves. It's hard to imagine the defending national champions not having a chance at the college football playoff, but that's exactly where UCF finds itself. Now, they had an awesome run last season, going undefeated, knocking off Auburn, a team that was very, very close to making the college football playoff. Scott Frost did wonders with that program. And right now, they do find themselves at 4-0, ranked 12th in the country, and with a conference win over FAU. But the sad thing is, for UCF fans, the schedule just isn't anything impressive. They beat up Pittsburgh last week, 45-14, to but I really think their most impressive win to date might very well be their conference game against FAU. That was a 56-36 to win over the Owls. UCF is still a very good football team, and Mackenzie Milton is one of the most exciting playmakers in all of college football. But the schedule does absolutely no favors for the Knights. Not only has UCF not played a top 25 team to this point, but their schedule going forward lacks a top 25 team the entire rest of the way as well. There simply isn't any room 
on their schedule to be able to impress the college football playoff committee enough to even get them in the discussion. And you mix that with the fact that while their offense has been very good, Milton is a very good leader. Their defense has been very suspect early in the season. Defensively, this team ranks 109th in the country at stopping the run. I think odds are, even with the easy schedule, with a defense that bad, UCF is going to find a loss somewhere on their schedule against another conference team. And if all of that's not enough, if you're going to consider a team that's outside of the Power 5 conferences right now, I think you absolutely have to circle Notre Dame. The Fighting Irish are ranked sixth in the country, and what they've done in the last couple of weeks in switching from Brandon Winbush at quarterback to Ian Book has really opened up this offense and developed a true passing game for the Fighting Irish. That change in Notre Dame's offense mixed with their schedule really makes for a great opportunity for Notre Dame to make it back into contention for a national championship. And their schedule is just a massive factor. This week they're at Virginia Tech, who heck, just two weeks ago lost to Old Dominion. Then they play the Pittsburgh team that this UCF team just trashed. And then they have games left at Navy, at Northwestern, a home game against Florida State, who we know can't stop anybody, a home game against Syracuse, who just gave Clemson a run, and a game at Southern Cal. Notre Dame will be a heavy favorite in each game remaining on its schedule and could very well find itself in the college football playoff as they march their way through the rest of the season. Now, as I get ready for break, I've got some exciting news for you here on the Blackout. Chris Randazzo, who you just heard give the question about UCF just a little while ago, is a part of the Super Team Media Group that I've partnered with in putting together the podcast. And as of this past week, you can now find Super Team Media and The Blackout both on Facebook. If you're a fan of the show, I'd like to ask you to go to Facebook and find Super Team Media there. There, you'll be able to find all kinds of information on all the podcasts that are on the Super Team Media Network. And that includes my podcast. While you're there, if you go ahead and search at the Blackout Podcast, you'll be able to find my podcast Facebook page and be able to follow all the details of the show, including who the guests are, when episodes are coming out, and find reminders for the next topics on the show. Now, as I head off to break, get ready for the interview on the other side as I will touch base with Tyler Palmatier, the sports editor and beat reporter for the Norman Transcript, as number 19 Texas gets ready to play number 7 Oklahoma this weekend at noon Eastern time. This is Thomas Black, and you are listening to The Blackout. And welcome back to the second segment of The Blackout. Now, here on the show, I welcome in Tyler Palmatier, sports editor and beat reporter for the Norman Transcript. Tyler, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. I welcome you to the show. Now, as we get ready to head into week six, you have one of the more exciting games of the entire weekend as we look at the Red River rivalry. We've got number 19, Texas. We have number seven, Oklahoma. What are you looking forward to most with this game and this matchup that seems to bring some excitement to this matchup for the first time in a few years? Well, I think it's interesting that um, you mentioned the fact that they're ranked for the first time, uh, both are ranked for the first time since 2012. I think that's brought, I think that's got people's interest. Um, maybe the people are a little more interested than in recent years, but the two quarterbacks that are playing, I think are pretty interesting. Sam Ellinger uh, for Texas, you know, he's he's playing a lot better this year. He's not making very many mistakes. Um, a really steady guy. Um, 
got beat up a lot last year in this game, but I think he could he could make a real difference. Um, and obviously the the narrative with Kyler Murray at OU being a guy who grew up in Allen, Texas, which is about an hour drive from Cotton Bowl Stadium. You know, the fact that he'll play against Texas there is is really pretty neat because um, he grew up not really liking the Longhorns much. He he did visit them late in the recruiting process, but obviously didn't end up there. And um, he's just Kyler Murray. You just can't you can't uh, understate how much uh, he means to Texas high school football. He's such a legend there because he never lost a game as a starter at Allen, and he's just. Uh, a guy that everybody there knows. So really fitting for him to get to play at the Cotton Bowl. Uh, from my standpoint, that'll be probably one of the more interesting things to watch. Yeah, as you look at a quarterback like Kyler Murray, you know, the thing that I've talked to people about is he strikes me as the closest thing we've seen in college football to Johnny Manziel. Uh, is there a comparison that you have for him? Do you think he is the closest thing we've seen to Johnny Manziel and that type of impact that he can carry on a game? Yeah, that's probably fair. Um because when a play breaks down, he's he's a real handful, um, and I, I would expect end to end speed. I, I just I don't know for sure, but I think he's probably a step faster than or two than than Manziel. Yeah. I mean, he just he can he has a different gear. I mean, he really is. He can be he has a running back or like a defensive back type speed um, once he gets going, and I just got that elite athleticism that you know that somebody who who plays two sports at as high a level as he does has. And he just, um, and so it's not just the speed. It's, it's, you know, it's agility. It's the ability to find small creases and get through them. And, and he just is such a, he's such a problem when the play breaks down. And that's just such a valuable tool for, for an offense when everything can go wrong and you have somebody who can get you, t- you know, 10, 15 yards out of it. And, and then that, that's not to discredit what he does with his arm either. He he's a, has a really strong arm and his accuracy is, I think, a lot better than people were expecting have, you know, since he hasn't played in regularly since 2015. Um, his accuracy, his poise, all the things that good quarterbacks have, uh, he's he's kind of displaying everything. With Murray and his passing ability, we've seen the comparisons to what he's done early in this season compared to what was going on last season as Baker Mayfield won the Heisman Trophy in the early start that he had. How remarkable is it, just in your eyes, how quickly he stepped in and adjusted to this offense? Yeah, I think for people just – people, I think, inside the program might have had a little bit of an inkling. Maybe they've been able to watch him, and and they knew. But it's – from the outside, I mean, it's surprising to me. And I, I think even you know, one of – I know you receiver, CeeDee Lamb – he said this week that he knew Kyler Murray was going to be good, but not this good. So I think some people are maybe even surprised at what he's done because he's already in a midseason form. And I just think it, it seemed like it was going to take time for him to get here. I sort of pictured him maybe being here, but maybe not until week 10 or something like that. Um, but he's he just came out of the gate ready to go. And I think it's a testament to, you know, Lincoln Riley is not just one of the one of the better offensive minds in college football. I, I think um what he'll start to get credit more credit for is how good he is as a quarterback's coach and developing players at that position. Um, I think you're seeing some of that right now. And I also think uh, Kyler Murray's time playing behind Baker Mayfield last season, which uh, if you remember last season, Murray was slated to start essentially, but Mayfield was granted that extra year of eligibility. So 
he had to he had to wait a little while longer. Uh, he's alluded to the fact that that year was beneficial because he he just got to he got to watch Mayfield uh, play at such a high level and and just learn a little bit more. So I think it's been kind of a humbling experience for him to sit out for a while and kind of let all this build up. And I, I think as you're seeing, he's he's pretty ready to play this year. We can talk an awful long time about the quarterbacks, but looking at the head coaches, I think there's some fascinating points to look at with these two young head coaches. You already mentioned Lincoln Riley, Tom Herman, so early in their tenures as head coaches. Uh, how big do you think this game is for them and just the track that they take going forward and just the importance for the early stage of their careers? It's big. It's, I mean, we just it's big in terms of you just don't want to lose this game, especially if you're Tom Herman. Not that he's on the hot seat, or anything. I mean, they've they've done a good job of rebounding since the Maryland loss. But you lose twice to OU, and then you know if things went south again, and you had another mediocre year, it's just you're just not going to build much momentum. Not just for to keep your job, but your ultimate goal, which is to revive the program. So winning this game can do that for a guy like Tom Herman, and it's big in that regard. Um, I think both coaches too. I mean, every coach puts a premium on recruiting. I would say I can't speak as much to Tom Herman, but um, Lincoln Riley is sort of head over heels for the recruiting part of this job, but just puts a ton of energy into it. And that, that part of OU football has really been revamped in the last two years uh, since since Lincoln Riley took over. And now that being said, Tom Herman puts an equal amount of importance on it, I'm too sure, because uh, – of the players, you know, a lot of the players Lincoln Riley is recruiting and so many across the country are from Texas and Texas has had that big issue, uh, you know, retaining a great, you know, great quarterbacks from Texas and, um, you know, missing out on a couple key guys here and there. So um, I just think it's still one game. Is not going to make or break a recruiting class? But I think it's still big in that regard to, to win that game for, uh, for some outside perception to some of those prospects that they, that they want to keep home and that Oklahoma on the flip side wants to, you know, bring it across the red river. Now, as we look at this game, I think it's fascinating to note that you look at Oklahoma and they've clearly got the better offense coming into this game, but you flip it to the other side. And I think it's Texas who clearly has the better defense. How exactly do you see that difference between these two teams play out on the field come Saturday? It's kind of interesting because um, this is probably the best secondary that they've, that OU is going to face uh, at least until, you know, TCU down the line. Um, I also, you know, I think what OU's done against the run has been pretty good too. And uh, this season, that's kind of where its defense has improved, but Texas has been even better. And um, OU has kind of struggled to to run the ball a little bit here lately. So it's that part of their offense isn't going to come to them very easily. I think there's a scenario where Texas could make OU one-dimensional if they can just totally stop the run and, and sit back and, and play their pass. So that could be a, a potential issue for, for Oklahoma and, you know, Oklahoma's defensive issues have, have been kind of tackling and, and uh, they haven't given up big plays in the secondary. They haven't given up big chunk passing plays, but they've been susceptible to those in the past. So um, it'll just be kind of another test for them defensively to try and, you know, not allow big plays and, I think they've been pretty good against the run, so they've got to sustain that too. Because Texas isn't a team that's running the ball that well, so if, you know that this just isn't a group that they want to have a big day. Sure.
Sure. Texas is has been having some trouble running the ball, but you look at Sam Ehlinger, and he is a guy that can move the ball with his legs, uh, scrambling situations, some designed runs. How exactly do you expect Tex- uh, Oklahoma to be able to defend Sam Ehlinger as he c- continues to look more and more comfortable at the quarterback spot? You know, when it comes to spying him and you know having somebody remain accountable for him, I think they were helped a little bit maybe by the Army game a couple weeks ago where they were just constantly playing assignment football against army with the triple option um and i think that i think that'll help them and their their linebackers ou's linebackers are playing a little bit better uh this year there's curtis bolton and kenneth murray um have combined for a lot of tackles the last couple of weeks i know kenneth murray has 45 uh himself just in the last two weeks so i think that they, they kind of have something they like there uh in the middle of their defense but there's some question marks too. There's some injuries. Kenneth Mann's a defensive end who's really important to uh, their success. A starter who didn't play last week and his his status is kind of up in the air um, this week. So is another linebacker, Ryan Jones, another starter. And those guys, uh, Lincoln Riley's actually been sick this week. So he hasn't addressed media himself and nobody else is at liberty to give injury reports. So we haven't heard anything about how injured guys are coming along. Um, so those are a couple question marks kind of going into into Saturday. And, you know, defending um, Ellinger's just going to be really important because that's one of his strengths is running the football. They're going to, he's going to be running it. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll have to continue to be, be good and, and spy him and, and, and contain him. They've had some issues with that in the past. Kansas state gave him fits last year in the quarterback run game. Um, so, it's not something that OU's been particularly good at. As we look ahead to kickoff, an early kickoff for you guys in the central time zone, uh, what do you look at as far as this game goes, and what's your prediction for the final? Yeah, it is another early kickoff. Gosh, for OU, I think it's, yeah, it's their fourth um, noon or earlier. They've had three at 11 a.m. now. Um, so that's been kind of that's been kind of different. I think I, I like OU to win. I'm going to pick them 35 to 28. I think they've got a little bit more, a few more weapons that it's just going to be hard for, for Texas to keep up. But this this game's been close in past years. It's been within a touchdown a handful of times in the last five seasons. So I think it'll remain close. And, of course, I have to give a big thank you to Tyler Palmatier of the Norman Transcript for coming on to preview the Texas-Oklahoma game this Saturday at noon Eastern time. You can find Tyler and his work online at normantranscript.com. You can also find him on Twitter at tpalmatier83. And you can find the Norman Transcript on Twitter at Norman News. Now it's time to close the blackout as I do each week. It's time for my picks against the spread. And last week, as I alluded to earlier in the show, I just got destroyed by Vegas in week five. I had Texas A&M minus 21 points versus Arkansas. But after leading 17-0, they only won this game 24-17. I had Texas minus 8.5 points at Kansas State. But the Longhorns led 19-0 in this game, looking like I was going to come away with a win on the day. But they ended up winning 19-14, winning by 5 points, not, of course, covering the 8.5-point spread. Later in the day, I had Michigan minus 14 points at Northwestern. The Wolverines had to come from behind to win by three on the road. 
And for my worst pick of the day, I had Mississippi State minus seven and a half versus Florida. What did the Gators do? They went on the road as a seven and a half point underdog and won outright 13 to six over the Bulldogs. Lucky for me, I wrapped up last week giving you Kentucky minus one and a half versus South Carolina. The Wildcats went on to win 24 to 10. And after going one and four last week, I now stand at an ugly two, five, and one on the season in picks against the spread. And now I'll see if I can get a big turnaround this week as I give you five more picks against the spread. At noon Eastern time on Fox, we've got number 19 Texas versus number seven Oklahoma in the Red River rivalry. Oklahoma, as they always are, has been very good offensively with the play of Kyler Murray at quarterback. In this one, they'll go up against the stiffest defense they've faced yet against the Longhorns. Add to that the fact that Oklahoma has had a very hard time stopping even mediocre competition at this point with their defense. I'll take Texas plus the seven points, but I look for Texas to keep this game close enough that I think they have a very good chance, and I'm going to go ahead and pick them to win this game outright. Next up is Missouri at South Carolina at noon Eastern time on the SEC Network. Now, everyone has gone out and proclaimed that Kentucky's far and away the second-best team in the SEC East. That may be the case, but I was actually pretty impressed with this Missouri team when they faced Georgia on their home field. South Carolina is going to be able to throw the ball all over the field, though, against this Missouri defense with Debo Samuel, Shai Smith, and Brian Edwards. I think this one's going to be a shootout, but in this case, with two teams that I think will score a lot of points, I'm going to go with the more experienced, better quarterback leading away for Missouri. I'll take Drew Luck and the two points on the road, but I'm also looking for Missouri, like Texas, to win this one outright as the underdog. At 3.30 Eastern time on CBS, we've got number five LSU at number 22 Florida. Now, Florida has heated up in recent weeks, but I am very skeptical about what their offense is going to be able to do against this LSU defense. Watch for LSU to pound at Florida with its running attack and to separate as this game goes on. Give me the Tigers minus two on the road in Gainesville. Also at 3.30 Eastern time on ABC, we've got Florida State at number 17 Miami. Florida State seems like they just can't do anything right. Just a few weeks ago, they were blown out by Syracuse. Miami's the better, more physical football team. They're better defensively. Give me the Hurricanes at home, minus 13.5 to knock off Florida State by a couple of touchdowns at, at the very least. And finally, at 7.30 Eastern time on Fox, I'm looking at number 10 Washington going to UCLA. And if you've followed any college football this season, you know that UCLA has been one of the downright worst football teams in America. They're inept offensively going against one of the best defenses in the country with Washington, and they can't do anything defensively going up against a Washington offense that hasn't been great this season, but does have some good weapons. Washington doesn't score a lot of points, but I can't help it in this one. Give me the Huskies minus 21 points at UCLA. That's all the time I have for this episode of The Blackout. For now, I ask that you go to the Super Team Media and The Blackout Podcast pages on Facebook and like both of them. Additionally, you can find me on Twitter at TB on the Blackout. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And of course, if you're liking the show, go ahead and give me a rating and a review both on iTunes and on Facebook while you're there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Blackout, and I look forward to talking to you again next week as we head into week seven of the college football season. 
For now, I'm Thomas Black, and thanks again for listening to The Blackout. 